Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to a brand new series and episode one in a series of episodes that we'll be using to walk through getting started with Microsoft Azure for Amazon AWS Cloud Professionals. My name is Keith Mayer. I am a principal architect on the Microsoft Azure team here at Microsoft, work lots with uh, ISV partners and customer organizations. And I have with me today our special guest, Gerald Tew. Hey, Gerald, how are you today? Good. How are you, Keith? Hey, everyone. Doing, doing great. Hey, Gerald, before we get started, for those out there that are watching today that haven't met you yet, could you spend just a couple seconds giving a brief introduction of yourself, your role at Microsoft, what and, and how you work with customers and partners? Yeah, sure. So I'm a senior technical architect here at Microsoft. I work with ISVs, managed and uh, even recruit, uh, help them essentially get into Azure and uh, build out uh, infrastructure solutions for them. Oh, great, great. And And prior to working with Azure, I understand that You've had quite a bit of experience in the past with uh, with AWS, the Amazon AWS cloud platform as well. Is that right? Yeah, so exactly. Before I worked at um, Microsoft, I was at Amazon as a professional services consultant for a few years and uh, worked heavily with Fortune 500 companies there doing uh, very similar stuff. Great, great. And in terms of uh, vertical industries, any special verticals that you've worked with in the past? Yeah, so a lot of what we'll end up talking about here and today is going to be uh, uh, some of the things that are passionate to my heart, which is media entertainment. So I worked at uh, hmm. Pixar and ILM and uh, Lucasfilm, uh, Image Movers Digital wow. and Tippett are a couple of the smaller ones that I worked at. But spent a lot of time in that industry and uh, really focusing on like driving adoption in the cloud at a company called Atomic Fiction, um, who's heavily like in AWS and uh, Google. Oh, great, great. And yeah, media and entertainment certainly has huge resource demands for many of their applications when it comes to cloud resources. So I'm, I'm sure you've got a lot of great experience for high-scale applications in the cloud that you'll be able to share with us throughout this series. Yeah, looking forward to it. So Gerald, as you've been working with customers and partners around cloud adoption and architecting for the cloud, what what are some of the the key scenarios or advantages that those customers and partners have have uh, called out for for leveraging the Azure cloud platform specifically. Yeah, so um, a lot of the companies I've been working with, the big one is our geographic uh, proximity to their their data centers or their current locations. So Microsoft Azure uh, has data centers that operate in 24 regions worldwide today, uh, which is more than any of the other uh, hyperscale cloud providers. Um, the other thing is that, uh, you know, we have a rapid pace of innovation, right? There's 600 new services that uh, were released in just the last 12 months alone. And the other thing is that we can build stuff faster um, with our solution. So, you know, uh, Azure has a lot of PaaS and IaaS offers, uh, which allow us to build things out in ARM templates and whatnot. So um, it's really great for us to be able to kind of show those things in um the agility that it provides for the customers. Yeah, no, I agree. You know, and, and as I talk with customers, it's interesting because initially, when customers just begin that cloud adoption cycle of beginning to think about how to leverage the cloud, the conversation is very much about cost reduction in in many cases, right? Looking at new ways to be able to provision high scale infrastructure at lower cost. But once they've gotten into the cloud 
and they're beginning to leverage it, really what they, what they call out is largely the agility that a cloud platform like Azure can provide in allowing their solution delivery teams to more, much more quickly deploy and deliver and enhance new solutions than they could before. And um, you, know, you had mentioned uh, the, the, our, our, the Azure Resource Manager template capability and, and the new Azure portal. Um, let's just spend a minute and kind of walk over to some of those resources so people have a, a visual anchor as to, to where they can leverage those within the Azure ecosystem. So, you know, certainly when we take a look at the Azure Management Portal from a, a web UI perspective, um, that becomes our, our main interface for using a sort of a, a, a GUI or, or, or web-based tool for managing Azure. It's been very much positioned around that DevOps mindset, right, of being able to create, even right on the home screen, various dashboard views for different teams, different projects or whatnot, editing each dashboard to roll in tiles that show statistics, met key metrics, latency, overall performance that's important to that particular project or team, and then being able to share those dashboards with others within the organization that are focused on those same applications. Heck, even if they have a, want to throw this up on a big screen in their uh, operations center, they can go full screen and be able to have that uh, up on, a, on, a, on a, a big monitor on the wall, for instance, and be able to use that as their, as their monitoring view. Um, and then, as you had mentioned, we've got this templating capability so that as, as a, a new customer begins provisioning resources in Azure, maybe they begin right through this web UI of you know, clicking on new and provisioning new virtual machines or uh, networks or storage accounts or whatnot, um, they have the ability to templatize those deployments so that we see a lot of customers that are using the portal for beginning to provision sort of a POC, a proof of concept type environment to test out new configurations, new application deployments or whatnot. And then once they've provisioned those resources through the portal the first time as they want to scale that out or make it into more of a repeatable deployment using resource groups to group those common resources together, they can drill into those resources that they've provisioned and actually export out one of those one of those arm templates uh, so let me just drill over into a particular resource group here and we can take a look at what what an arm template looks like in the AWS world while we're waiting for this to come up Gerald what uh, what would be the AWS technology for those that are more familiar with Amazon AWS that these arm templates would relate to yeah, so these are a lot similar to AWS's um, CloudFormation templates. They're both written in JSON. Uh, they both provide you the ability to do like networking, uh, your VM provisioning, your um, <clears throat> your security groups. Uh, all those kind of things are all provisioned in the templates. And this is always one big thing that I try to teach customers early on is that you want to be creating like these IaaS uh, workflows with scripts and with templates because what it makes is it makes for a lot more repeatable and um, a lot easier deployable solutions so that you can not only leverage it for the solution you're doing right now but leverage it for future solutions going down the road. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. And drilling into properties of, of one of those resource groups that has a number of resources that are provisioned inside of it. And as we look at settings blade, uh, we'll see an option 
that will pop up in a moment here for for exporting under resource management, exporting an ARM template. Kind of a cool feature because even if you're not expert in JSON formatting or ARM, the ARM template language, <laughs> you can use the portal to quickly create your environment manually and then export that as a template that you can parameterize quite easily and be able to deploy, enhance it, deploy using repeatable tools shell or our cross-platform CI for Linux and Mac OS X or .NET or whatnot. And so we're just going to drill into the properties of one of our resource groups here. I'll pick one of the resource groups that I previously deployed VMs inside. And Gerald, while we're waiting for that to pop up, um, the, these ARM templates that we're talking about, for those that are watching that are more familiar with Amazon Web Services, what's the corresponding technology over in the AWS world? Yeah, so in AWS, uh, the same technology is considered CloudFormation, and so in a lot of the same ways, they're both JSON, um, they're both templates to deploy infrastructure, um, and for us, the big thing is that, you know, you can deploy network security groups, you can deploy your VNets, you can deploy your VMs, you can deploy your databases, your storage, all of that in a repeatable and reusable template. And one of the things that I always tell my customers when I'm talking to them is that you really want to have this to be able to plan for the future where you're not only deploying for the, the infrastructure that you're dealing with now, but you're deploying it for things that you have coming down the road. So you can take that same uh, code and reuse it and repeat it for whatever um, technology you have coming forward. Sure. Awesome. And um, on the AWS side of things, um, when customers are building cloud formation templates, that can be pretty time intensive, can it? It sounds like building oh, all that definitely. JSON. Yeah. I mean, like a lot of times um, we've had customers both write, you know, even scripts around those templates to build the templates themselves. And then you had customers that would, you know, like have to hire someone that just knows a lot of JSON, a lot of like AWS, just to understand that. So like having some of the tools and technology that we have that you're about to go over is, I think, uh, very interesting uh, for our customers at Microsoft. Oh, cool. Yeah. And so here we have a resource group that we've used the portal to provision out several VMs as a group of resources, along with NICs and security groups and all that good stuff. And as we drill into that group of resources, you'll see on the settings blade here an export template feature that allows me to take all of the resources that I provisioned from the portal and export them programmatically as a base ARM template. So I can use this as my starting point and having to instead of having to build all of this from scratch. And it tries to bring in some intelligent parameters for things like virtual machine names and network interface names and whatnot. But I can take this and copy and paste it into uh, my favorite JSON editor, which could be something like Visual Studio Code, uh, which we're showing here, our free version of Visual Studio. It's got a uh, a great ability for being able to provide IntelliSense support and and uh, syntax support for common common languages like JSON and the ARM template language. It'll read the schema in, and you'll see that basically the way those ARM templates are formatted is there's a set of parameters that we can define, a set of variables that we can use when we're declaring resources to set programmatic values, and then the resources themselves. And uh, those resources can be really anything that's supported in Azure through Azure Resource Manager. It could be storage accounts, IP addresses, virtual networks, uh, could be uh, 
uh, network interfaces or virtual machines or whatnot. And then once we've got that template up and running, we can we can deploy it. And we can deploy it through the portal or right over on our export resource group template blade, we have these tabs for CLI, PowerShell, and .NET that'll actually give us the script code for taking that template, that ARM template, and being able to programmatically deploy it through bash scripts using the Azure cross-platform toolkit for Linux and Mac OS X, or PowerShell for Windows admins, or .NET for developers that are more familiar with .NET languages. So built-in support for basically using any of the tools that someone may be familiar with to be able to, as you said, repeatedly deploy, repeatedly rep deploy these resources in a consistent way and in a, uh, a, a very uh, programmatic manner. So that takes a lot of the manual guesswork out of deploying resources. Yeah, and I'd just like to say, too, that, um, you know, a big part of this is that, you know, we have all these tooling available, and they are cross-platform. Like, as you said, VS Code is something that we're giving away for free. It works on Mac. It works on Windows, like either one. Like, a lot of developers that I know are on Macs. That's okay, you know? Like, it's it's all great for us. Yeah, definitely. And, and I, I don't know about you, but I, I think about the combination of infrastructure services and platform services that Azure provides is also being able to accelerate that deployment of new solutions or delivery of enhancements to solutions as well, right? Because by taking advantage of some of the PaaS elements around web and mobile application hosting or uh, storage or cloud services or IoT or big data, um, it allows development teams to really focus on building the business logic in their solutions rather than building, you know, in many cases what amounts to kind of the plumbing underneath their business logic in, in, in an IaaS-centric environment, right? And so, right. so from an Azure standpoint, it allows development teams to kind of pick and choose. Do they want to go purely IaaS because they're more comfortable with that? Do they want to start leveraging some PaaS features? Do they want to start evolving more to purely PaaS? They can pick and choose where they fall on that adoption line, right, and, and, and determine how best to combine those together. So you can certainly do straight IaaS or PaaS plus IaaS or straight PaaS uh, adoption. Is that, is, that, is that what you, is that the way that you look at it as well, Gerald? Yeah, so the way that I've always talked about this to customers is that you have your traditional IT infrastructure and when they look at IaaS deployments, they're more comfortable there because that's what they know and that's what they understand. And that's perfectly fine and it's a great way for people to get into the, the system and understand it. Now, if we're talking about a full new workload, um, that's something where I strongly encourage my customers to look at our PaaS offerings because it's like we have a lot of tools and a lot of things that will help them get up to speed faster and provide them savings, cost savings for what they're doing already. So a lot of times the way that I show it is, you know, you want to start out and you want to move some workloads that you already know into Azure. Well, start that in IaaS. We know how to build it. We know how to move it over. You got some more new workloads coming in. Well, let's look at the PaaS offerings and layer it on top of the IaaS. And then all of a sudden you have this hybrid going on and you can really work from there. Yep, definitely, definitely. And as as organizations are evaluating their cloud strategy, uh, Another area that I see organizations needing to balance are cloud considerations around application requirements for performance and latency and data sovereignty, security, internal or external regulations that they need to be compliant with. 
And oftentimes that leads an organization down the path of really hybrid cloud-based architectures, right, where they're leveraging for some applications or components of applications, they're on-premises data center or hosted data centers, and for others they're leveraging where it makes sense to get that hyperscale and low-cost and super agile approach to, to leverage public cloud platforms. Do you, do you see a lot of that hybrid, um, those hybrid scenarios as well? Yeah, definitely. And, you know, along with those hybrid scenarios, like people are building, you know, like you said, like on-prem infrastructure and bursting to the cloud. One of the big ones that we always talk about in the media industry is rendering, right? Mm -hmm. So render farms are traditionally like large, big pieces of infrastructure for these media companies that they have tens and thousands of cores, but occasionally they'll hit us a speed bump or a problem where it's like we could really use another 5,000 cores. Well, all of a sudden the cloud becomes this additional layer of technology that they can bring in and spool up when they need, and yet when they don't need it, it's gone. They're not paying for it, and it saves them a, a considerable amount of money. Yeah, definitely. And when we think about hybrid, um, oftentimes when I'm talking with customers, their initial thought is hybrid cloud means just raw network connectivity from my on-premises data center out to a public cloud platform. And that's certainly a component of it, right? But we layer on top of that the need to also think about hybrid cloud management of that combined on-prem and public cloud investment, as well as consistency of developing and deploying solutions across that hybrid cloud model. And, and so those two areas become a, a differentiator, I feel, compared to other cloud platform providers because it's led us down the path that, you know, cloud is not a destination like many cloud platform providers view it as, get it all to the public cloud. Cloud is really about presenting an architecture, an architecture that gives you the power of the public cloud within your private data center and the ability to extend that to the public cloud with consistency. And this is really where, where we're going with Azure Stack, being able to take the Azure infrastructure, fabric infrastructure and deliver it in a form factor that enterprises and hosting partners can deploy as their own private or white-labeled versions of, of Azure as well to provide that consistency. Do you see, are you seeing a lot of interest around Azure Stack as well? Oh, definitely, especially with larger customers that are, like, wanting to figure out new ways of, like, um, you know, leveraging data centers and cross-connectivity, like you said. Like, Azure Stack has been pretty key in differentiating for us um, because of the fact that, essentially, you can spool up your solution in the very same way in your personal data center as in, in the cloud data center. So I think yeah. it's, it's pretty awesome. Yeah, absolutely. When you think about it, it allows, it allows a customer or a partner to really grow their footprint of leveraging a consistent cloud ecosystem by thinking about the Azure ecosystem as the combination of the 24, soon 28, public cloud regions that we're operating and managing worldwide from a Microsoft perspective, plus the hundreds of hosting providers and managed services providers worldwide that will be leveraging Azure Stack to deliver an Azure consistent hosted offering, plus the ability for enterprises to deploy Azure Stack internally in data center locations where it makes sense because they've already made an investment in those data centers to allow these customers to develop their solution once and be able to deploy it literally anywhere. So that's a, 
a big differentiator, I think, as well. One, one of the other areas, though, that I see a lot of interest around, it's been interesting over the last 12 to 18 months, is compliance. Because uh, I say that because a couple of years ago, when talking with customers, compliance was probably the single biggest reason that organizations would cite for not considering a public cloud platform as a component of their IT strategy. And nowadays, it's almost completely reversed, where organizations have realized that with the broad portfolio of compliance standards that a hyperscale platform like Azure offers for the fabric and below, that it can actually be an advantage to customers to work with public cloud providers like Azure because they can leverage the built-in compliance that Azure's already achieved for the fabric and below and only have to worry about a smaller slice of achieving compliance around their application and how they're storing data on top of that fabric. Is, is, that, is that what you're seeing as well, Gerald? Yeah, and I'll give out one like really big point for you know the media and entertainment industry. The MPAA and the CDSA compliance that we've um, obtained is something that is unique to Azure, and it's a, it's a, something that was the first in its kind for the media and entertainment industry to have that compliance where you essentially are now helping customers become more compliant. Right, and it it decreases the amount of time that they have to worry about these compliance audits and things like that. Something that I've gone through in the past, and it just takes forever, and it taxes your IT organization to no end, right? Because you're trying to abide by all these rules. Well, now if you're on a service that is already compliant and you have specific sets of rules for it, well, now we've just you know increased the or decreased the amount of time that your IT um, needs to take for that. Yeah, definitely. I, I'm seeing interesting. Uh, in, uh, I'm seeing similar interest from law enforcement and public safety organizations around the CJIS compliance, the criminal justice compliance that Azure government has, um, because other hyperscale cloud platforms don't meet those compliance requirements. And what most law enforcement agencies seem to be trending towards is having all of their retained data around any type of uh, case or arrest or traffic stop or whatnot, having it all be stored in a CGIS compliant manner so that if they have to go back and leverage that for unexpected uses down the road, they don't have to worry about how that data was maintained and managed. Um, they can be assured that it's being done in a, in a, in a CGIS compliant manner. And so similarly, leveraging the, the fabric and below level compliance for CGIS has been a, a big accelerator for law enforcement and public safety agencies in, in meeting their compliance requirements. Um, I guess the other reason that I see a lot of customers moving to Azure, though, is because it's familiar to them. It's easy to them for deploying their workloads. And that could be, you know, regardless if it's Microsoft workloads like SQL or SharePoint or Dynamics or Exchange. Um, you know, Azure is really one of the best cloud platforms for Microsoft workloads because Azure support is baked into the common criteria that Microsoft software teams for SQL, SharePoint, whatnot, that they use for testing and, and releasing new versions of our application solutions. So Azure compatibility is a, a big piece of that. But not only for Microsoft workloads, also for open source workloads as well. And this could be, you know, whether it's 
operating systems, you know, various uh, Linux distributions like Red Hat or Ubuntu or SUSE or, or whatnot. It could be container technologies like Docker uh, and Mesos. It could be uh, databases like support for MySQL and Hadoop and MongoDB or even application frameworks and management tools, um, Python, Java, PHP, Node.js, Puppet, Chef, uh, across the board, very broad support for open source. I find that a lot of people are actually surprised by our breadth of open source support when we first start talking to them. Um, is, that, is that what you've seen as well uh, in talking yeah, with definitely. customers partners? Yeah, definitely, Keith. Uh, it's it's always a surprise when customers come up and say, like, wait, you guys aren't only, you know, doing Windows? And it's like, well, no, we have, you know, the ability to run Linux VMs. We have, you know, the ability to let you, you know, use your own Python and JavaScript or whatever tools you're familiar with to deploy. And like I said earlier in the, the show, like, um, you know, a lot of our developers now are, are running on Macs, and it's perfectly fine. We have tools that uh, support them, the cross-platform CLI, VS Code, those things, they're all running on Mac and Windows, and it makes it easier for people to move back and forth between the two. Yep, definitely. And our open source support's even gone a bit further than that, so that, you know, recently at our build conference, we announced uh, support for um, Ubuntu user mode on Windows 10 with the latest Windows 10 Insider releases. And so, uh, here I've got a, uh, a Ubuntu Bash window that's running in that user mode environment. Essentially what it's doing is the user mode environment is translating Linux syscalls down to Windows system calls. So you can think of it as on Windows, it's sort of the reverse of Wine on Linux that allows you to run Windows applications on Linux. This allows you to run Ubuntu Linux user mode utilities and, and applications on Windows 10, essentially. And so I've got the uh, cross-platform CLI that you were just mentioning installed in this so that if I'm more comfortable with the Bash shell, I can use the Bash shell right on Windows 10. I can do an Azure login and be able to log in. And if I do a, an Azure account show, it'll come back and uh, show me my account information along with my, my Azure subscription and the environment I'm using and who I, who I logged in as. And then uh, if, I, if I need to go a bit further and start working with resources like virtual machines or uh, batch job or storage or, or whatnot, I can do something like an Azure VM list right from Ubuntu, call out to Azure, come back with a list of currently provisioned virtual machines in this case across all those various data center regions that, uh, that we were just um, talking about on a, a little bit earlier in our, in our episode across those 24 or so data center regions. So very powerful. Um, so you know, really the message is whether you're familiar with Windows application workloads and management tools like PowerShell or open source workloads and management tools like Bash or Chef or Puppet or Ansible or whatnot, Azure is the platform for you, right, that can, that can, can leverage all of that. And, and in terms of accelerating adoption of solutions and provisioning of solutions. You know, another important piece to call out is our broad support for third-party package solutions. Because when you're, when you're subscribing to Azure, not only do you have the ability to provision our canned uh, images of VMs and PaaS services and whatnot that the Azure team provides, and your own custom images that you might create for your applications, but you have access to an ecosystem of 
over 3,500 third-party solutions that are part of Azure Marketplace for key enterprise applications like SAP, key open source operating systems like Red Hat Enterprise Linux, and database platforms like Oracle, and solutions from IBM, and Cisco, and data stacks, and whatnot. So it's it's a very broad ecosystem that uh, that you can leverage through the Azure through your Azure subscription. So, so Gerald, we've talked a lot about Azure and the services it provides, and you know some of them are similar to AWS, some of them are unique. But for those people out there that are familiar with provisioning on AWS, how how different is is provisioning on Azure? You know, where 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 do you find a lot of the the stumbling blocks that people have? Um, you know, for me, the big stumbling blocks that I've seen folks have is just kind of forgetting that, like, even in AWS and even in uh, in Azure, there are limits to what people can do. And a lot of times they're soft limits, right? And so, um, you know, both platforms have ways of deploying your VMs or your storage accounts, et cetera, et cetera. But I think a lot of times, like, what people forget is kind of the pain points when they're starting up and they built out a full solution, and it's like, well, okay, well, they forgot that they had to contact their solution architect to increase, you know, their VM limit or increase the number of VNets they can have. And so a lot of times when I'm talking to customers, I say, hey, we already know this is going to be a solution that involves 40 VMs. Well, our, we only have a 20-core limit, so we're going to need to get that done in advance. We do these things to kind of soften the blow of the pain points that we know. And so that's a lot of things that we I try to bring up when I'm talking to customers. Yeah, definitely. And no, I think that's great. And and the Azure team's done a great job of documenting the default limits and the maximum limits. As you say, mo most of these limits are soft limits that can be increased with a simple support request ticket through the Azure portal. But it's important to know, as you point out, as part of the architecture in advance, to know that these limits are there and that if you need to increase them that you make that request in advance of trying to deploy your solution to Azure so that you're not hitting any of these soft kind of artificial limits, right, uh, from that standpoint. And then the other area that I see a lot of customers struggle with is the terminology differences that Am that Amazon Web Services and Microsoft Azure use because many of their, um, many of the the categories of services provide similar functions, but they're called different things. So mapping those services between one another is a great first starting point as well for people that are more familiar with AWS. And uh, we've given a kind of a dictionary, a cheat sheet, if you will, of AWS services to Azure services with drill-throughs to the more details, uh, to more details on each of the Azure services for everyone so that as you're kind of coming over from AWS and learning to deploy and use resources on, on, on Azure, you, you have a, a quick reference guide for, for helping to jumpstart that. And uh, we'll be sure to include links to all these resources at the bottom of the page that everyone's watching today's episode on so that you don't have to scramble and write it down as you're watching the episode. You can just scroll down to the bottom of the page and you'll, you'll see all of these resources listed there, definitely. So, so, so Gerald, when, when people are starting out with planning a cloud deployment, um, we talked about Azure subscription and service limits, but what about architectural differences? Are there, you know, major architectural differences that that people need to account for, or is it pretty similar? Or how do, how do you see that? Well, as you're 
showing right now, the architecture is actually very similar when you're talking about an IaaS deployment. So for the most part, we have virtual networks. Amazon has VPCs. We have, you know, public IPs. They have Elastic IPs. We have Azure load balancer, load balancer, and versus Elastic load balancer. Uh, we have this thing with load balancers that I will warn people about. That our load balancer is, you know. Azure internal load balancer and Azure um, external load balancer. So sometimes like searching for them becomes a little bit confusing because uh, they're named ILB in both cases. So, or it's internet load balancer and internal load balancer. So ah, ILB, okay. <laughs> so it's something that people need to keep an eye on like uh, when they're doing some searches. So um, yeah. Okay, yeah, definitely. And yeah, and so, it sounds like the architecture all up is very similar where we we build out a virtual network on the Azure side or a VPC on the AWS side and inside that virtual network have one or more subnets um, that can be secured through network security groups which are similar in some ways to security groups on the AWS side. They provide kind of a built-in layer 4 firewalling capability of traffic going in and out of that subnet. Uh, we have the ability to have those load balancers either external public facing for commonly for like a web tier or API tier and then internal facing for allowing the, the web tier or API tier to talk to a load balanced middle tier or data tier for instance behind it. And then uh, we have storage offerings. You know, our storage offerings are a little different in that uh, for basic storage that all falls under our Azure storage category, whether it's uh, block storage or disk-based storage. So on the AWS side, they kind of separate out block versus disk at that point with EBS and S3. Um, and we also have a separate offering for high-speed disk-based storage, SSD-based storage, called premium storage as well. And uh, have the ability to have support very large volume sizes by spanning multiple disks. Um, we do provide some, I think, some advantages in that we're using a common industry standard virtual hard disk format for our VMs to provide more portability between on-prem and hosted environments in Azure, where sometimes I've seen people on the AWS side run into difficulty because um, if they're provisioning from the built-in AWS images, those are in an AMI format that's specific to the AWS platform and, and not as uh, easily portable from that standpoint. But, uh, but yeah, definitely a very similar architecture. And in our, our next uh, few episodes, uh, episode two, three, four, five, we'll be kind of walking through this architecture. In episode two, we'll be talking about uh, planning out and provisioning the networking side of this architecture on Azure. And then in episode three, we'll be talking about more details around the steps involved in provisioning the storage. And then in episode four, we'll look at virtual machines and provisioning compute within that virtual network. And then we'll finish out our series with episode five, talking about managing across multiple clouds or hybrid cloud scenarios as well uh, with consistency. So some great episodes coming up where we'll be able to deep dive into these particular, the nuances of, of, a, of a, an IaaS-based architecture on Azure versus AWS in, in much more granularity. So, so we've talked about a lot of great information that people need to be concerned about when they're, when they're planning to leverage Azure or other cloud platforms, Gerald. Uh, it all sounds great, but 
what about cost? You know, how do how how can we? You know, if, if Azure costs too much, organizations aren't going to use it, right? No matter how many great features we have in it. So, how can organizations get some visibility into cost planning with Azure? Yeah. So we have an Azure pricing calculator, and with Azure, you pay as you go for only the services you're using as you use them. So it's very cost effective. I will mention a couple things on this. Uh, one being that our VMs, uh, unlike Amazon, um, are paid per minute rather than per hour. So for a scaling workload that is constantly increasing and decreasing in size, there's a significant savings that can be had there. And then the second big thing is that in our pricing calculator, and this is a common contention or whatever you want to call it, but we do 744 hours per month. And with the Amazon calculator, they do 732 hours per month. So ah, when you're looking okay. at it, so sometimes apples aren't quite apples when you're looking at a comparison tool. Okay, so if I'm trying to do a cost comparison, it's probably if I'm looking at a competing calculator from say AWS or something, and looking at the Azure calculator, I may want to look at it as on Azure 732 hours to get more of an apples to apples comparison. Exactly. That's good. Yeah, that's good feedback. The other area that I that I see a lot is um, you know Azure. When we think about cores, Azure uses non-hyper-threaded real cores for uh, for each of the VMs, and that's not always true of competing cloud platforms. So it's definitely something to look at when you're looking at other cloud platforms compared to Azure. What we commonly see is that other cloud platforms are using oftentimes hyper-threaded cores. And if that's the case that you're finding uh, in the cloud platform that you're coming from, you know, think about you know, hyper-threaded. Hyper-threading generally only provides maybe 12 to 18 percent of increased CPU capacity. So oftentimes, what we do, what we recommend from a, a, a competitive comparison standpoint between clouds, is to have the number of cores when you're looking at Azure from what you're using on a competing cloud platform that's using hyper-threading. So if I was using a two-core a two-core or two-vCPU VM somewhere else on another cloud platform where hyper-threading is being used, I might drop that down to one core, for instance, on Azure and still get comparable performance because it's one real core versus two hyper-threaded cores. Do you see a lot of that as well, um, Gerald? Yeah, definitely. And it's definitely some source of confusion for customers as well where they're trying to match up an exact, exact, you know, like, you know, what does this mean from a Google perspective or what does this mean from an Amazon perspective? It's, it's something that you should definitely keep an eye out for. Great, great. And, uh, you know, prior to our, our, our episode today, you had also called out some other great resources that people should be aware of when they're looking at, at Azure as well. So we've got some great application architecture resources for Azure. We've got design patterns for building cloud applications. We've got free certification courses for getting certified as a, a Microsoft uh, certified architect for designing Azure solutions. We've got blueprints that are downloadable. And if you're someone that loves Visio and, and is involved in doing architectural drawings, mm -hmm. we also have a full drawing symbol and icon set that's really downloadable that you can use with Visio or PowerPoint or any tools that can use, you know, PNG files really uh, with a full a full assortment of pre-built Azure symbols. So some great information that will include a link down below as well when you're when you're getting started with Azure to help you down that process. Well, Gerald, we've given people a lot of information to think about getting started. I think we're ready. Where, what, what do we yeah. do to to actually jump in and and get our Azure account all set up? 
Well, you know, so you can just go online to, you know, the Azure.com or, no, sorry, Azure.Microsoft.com and you can create a free account and pay for only what's needed there. Yeah, definitely. And actually, if you create your free account today, we've got, uh, for the time being, we've got a $200 credit promotion where you, you'll get $200 of cloud credit to spend how you'd like for your first month in the cloud in Azure. And so you can do things like, you know, provision a bunch of virtual machines or SQL databases or storage or use some of our PaaS offerings around web, mobile, and API apps or uh, Redis Cache, Search, CDN support, Hadoop, list goes on. But beyond that $200 credit, there's also free tiers for many of our Azure services. And on that same free sign-up page, we also have a link to explore all of the services that have free tiers for hosting application solutions. And these are free tiers forever that as you start using Azure, you can decide when it makes sense to upgrade to a more comprehensive paid tier to get well, on a paid tier either more capacity or more features for leveraging that service. And you'll see it's quite an extensive list of completely free offerings on Azure once you sign up for that free account that have a free tier that lasts forever until you decide to upgrade. So some great stuff uh, to take advantage of without any cost associated with it to, to certainly jumpstart some ideas in the Azure cloud. Free is good, right? <laughs> yeah, free is awesome. $200 yeah. is even better. Yeah, definitely. And then speaking of free, we also have a free program that any IT professionals that are working in the cloud can join at no cost. It's a subscription program, no cost for the subscription. You enroll in it. And in addition to Azure, you'll also get free, you get, you get started for free with our other cloud offerings around Office 365 and Enterprise Mobility Suite. You'll get pointed to free training and education to help sharpen your skills and get further down that path towards adopting the cloud in your environment, as well as support options from IT experts in the community to help walk you through or answer questions that you may have as you're moving forward with, uh, with adoption. And again, all these resources are down at the bottom of the page as well. Well, Gerald, I think that's about all the time we have today, but I feel like we've given everybody sort of a whirlwind introduction to getting started with Azure and some of the advantages we're seeing. And then certainly in... Um, the following episodes that are beyond this first initial episode in our series will deep dive into the more technical aspects of provisioning virtual networks, storage, VMs, management tasks, and whatnot. Uh, but Gerald, thanks so much for joining us today for this episode, and uh, we certainly, certainly look forward to having you back for each of the future episodes in this series as well. Yeah, thanks, Keith. I appreciate it and look forward to working with you on this. Sure thing. And thank you, everyone, for attending today's episode and watching us walk through Azure from the perspective of an Amazon AWS cloud professional. Look forward to seeing you back in uh, episodes two through five. Have a great day, everybody.